Man, one of the interesting things about uh, being a year and a half into this church plant, um, one of the things that I expected, there's a lot of stuff I didn't expect that did happen. There's some things that I did expect that haven't happened yet, like people showing up on time. Um, I can't really talk because I was like two minutes late today, but I had a bad morning. But, you know, we are a much smaller church at 1030. So, uh, I mean, you see it's getting a little tight. So some of y'all going to start getting here on time when you got to sit on the floor in the corner over there and hear preaching from the back of our head. Um, I want to pray one more time, ask God to help us. Um, My prayer this morning is that the Lord would use his word to work in our hearts. Uh, That's our only hope for this to be fruitful. So let me pray. Father, we come before you again in Jesus' name, Lord, and we need your word. Uh, we need your spirit, Father. We need you to work in us, Lord. We, we desperately want you to be honored in the life of our church. We desperately want you to be honored in our lives, God. So, so show us what you have to say to us, Father. Um, please press it into our hearts, God. Uh, move us in a way where we want to share it with one another. God, and help these truths about who you've made us, God. Help it to, yeah, Father, we don't, we don't have any desire to just know some stuff to know some stuff. We are not just trying to learn some facts and some words, Father. We want the words of life. Um, so, God, we pray you speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to start by asking you a question. Um, and this is not... Uh, the kind of question that I just want you to just hear and just move on from. I actually want to hear some answers. Um, what comes to mind, just a few people, what comes to mind for you when you hear the word saints? Holy. What would you say, Chandra? Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Halo. Church. Redeemed. Football. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> Drew Brees is not in this book, okay? We we in this book this morning. Um, John has already rebuked those who have football as an idol um, and basketball. Um, a lot of interesting things will come to mind when we hit a word saint. This is one of those words that we find in Scripture that, you know, people are familiar with in some ways and different things come to mind. And depending on our background, you know, there may be different things that we think about. So uh, most of us in this room uh, didn't grow up with a, with a Catholic background. But if somebody does grow up with a Catholic background, they may have more of a Roman Catholic idea about what saints are. So when you say saints, they may think of, um, you know, they may think of, of relics. They may think of uh, uh, Christians who've already passed on that you can pray to that will pray on your behalf, specifically in particular areas. Those kinds of things may come to your mind. Some people may think of just people they've heard called saints, maybe the disciples, you know. They may think, oh yeah, Saint Paul, he's a saint, and Saint Matthew, he's a saint. They may think of saints like that. Or you may just think the most holy, incredible Christian you've ever heard of. Maybe you think of someone who's done incredible good deeds, like a Mother Teresa or civil rights leaders. Different things will come to our mind, but what we normally are gonna think of is what a lot of us talked about, people who are super holy, people who in some form of fashion, uh, yeah, have some kind of supernatural holiness and righteousness to them. And people think there's so much that, that saint, they associate it with that holiness that when people want to talk about how they're not perfect, you know, people will be like, you know, I'm no saint myself. 
even if they're calling someone out, like, I ain't saying I'm a saint, but you can't just be doing that. Right? People understand that saint is in some way associated with holiness. And we usually use that to differentiate from us how we are. But what would you say if I told you, based on what the Bible says, that if you know Jesus, you are a saint? Uh, a lot of people's first response would be like, uh, well, Trip, I don't think you know me that well. Because if you're trying to say, I'm a saint, there's clearly some stuff that you don't understand. And again, because when we look at our lives, we normally don't think supernatural holiness. Um, there's this weird thing where even if you walk up to a random person on the street, there's an amount of self-awareness that we're not uh, perfectly holy. Um, so that even if you just ask a random person on the street and you say, hey, are you perfect? Most people, you know, most everybody is going to admit they're not. And a lot of times we're willing to admit more generally that we're not perfect. But if, you know, we want to talk about specific sins, it's impossible to get anybody to confess any specific sins, even if I show you video evidence of it. We don't like that. That feels a little more judgy. That feels like it comes with responsibility of doing something about those sins. Much easier to speak in general terms about uh, our sins, but we, we all have, you know, varying degrees of uh, self-awareness. We, we understand we're not perfect, we're flawed. I remember watching this reality show um, where, where all the, the, the main characters on the reality show were professing Christians. Um, and as I watched it, um, I don't know why I watched it, because it drove me crazy. It was some form of self-torture that I kept... Uh, submitting myself to through my DVR. It's not even like I was flipping through. I watched it on purpose. My wife witnessed it, and I would just be sitting there angry the whole time. Um, and one of the reasons is there was, uh, there was one guy on the show who, you know, he, he was going through a lot in his life. He, he wasn't doing so well. And so his life uh, at that time while the show was going on was, was filled with all kinds of adultery and, and pride and, and isolation and, and deception. But that's not the part that surprised me because all of us do have issues and some of us have had significant deep issues and Christians can end up in serious sin. What surprised me and what frustrated me was the way that he talked about his issues, that he would justify his sin by saying stuff like, but I'm still human. Like, I know I'm a Christian, and I'm on this TV show, but, but I am human. I'm just a person, right? He would, and we all like to say stuff like that sometimes, too. Like, I'd like to do better, but I'm only human, as if human and sin are synonymous. The, the assumption behind that is to be human is to sin, right? The other assumption behind that is what else would you expect from us? That's what humans do. Dogs bark. Human sin, it's just synonymous, it's what happens. And we assume that just because sin is common, sin is okay. And we kind of trivialize it, like it's something we should get used to. It's not ideal, but it is what it is. What should you expect from us? We're just sinners, right? Wrong. If you're in Christ, we're not just sinners, right? When we trust in Jesus Jesus gives us a new identity so that while we still are sinners, we're also saints. These paradoxes happen when we believe in Jesus. While he lives, leaves us on this earth in this fallen world, there's stuff about us that already looks like what it's going to be like in heaven. Right? We're saints. Well, we're sinful saints. So I want to continue 
Uh, along the same lines of what we talked about last week, and we was thinking about our identity, and, and last week we were talking about being dead but alive, and this week we're going to talk about another part of our identity, that we are sinful saints. And thinking about ourselves as saints is still hard to hear. So let me just say this. There's a reason people think super-duper holy people when they think saints. This is one of the rare times where cultural understanding of, a, of the word is, you know, somewhat in the same ballpark. Saints means holy ones. So if you was thinking holy ones, you get an A-plus on the quiz. But, but here's where we get it wrong. We've completely missed how someone gets to be named among the saints. This is what we misunderstand, what's required to be one of the saints, what it means to be a holy one of God. And Scripture uses other titles for us too, sanctified, holy ones, royal priesthood, God's people set apart, redeemed, stuff that we got to sing and rejoice in, I am redeemed. And here's why I think this matters, not just because I want you to, like, put that after your name like a degree. Like William Barefield, saint, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying you need to do that. Here's why I think this matters for our lives, not just so we can have another title to call ourselves. How we think about ourselves shapes how we live our lives. Who we understand ourselves to be shapes how we live our lives. This is one of the ways we see this. Um, in a lot of urban environments like ours, one of the like, real tragedies is the hopelessness around keeps people from aspiring to great things, right? For instance, there's plenty of young men who really cannot imagine a world where they end up anywhere other than dead or in jail, and so they don't aspire to anything else. Where there's no hopes, there, there are no dreams. Where there's no amb- hopes for something greater, there's no striving for anything greater. And so dudes just kind of accept, my cousin ended up this way, my dad ended up this way, and I'm going to end up the same way, so I might as well just give in and let it happen. In the barbershop, I had a conversation about this the other day, and everybody agreed. I mean, that's all dudes have seen, and that's kind of why they don't strive for anything else. And the same thing can happen for us spiritually. If we assume that because I'm human, I'm just destined to live this life imprisoned by sin. I'm just going to sin uncontrollably because that's just who I am. If we don't have hope that there's something besides that, we're not going to strive for anything besides that. Right? And this is a reality for a lot of us here today where, where we feel like we are just hopelessly lost and messed up and there's nothing that could ever be seen as good that's ever been us. But if we are more than just sinners, if we've been set apart by God, if we've been made holy by God, if God promises that there's more to our lives than that, then we get the chance to actually live the way we were made to live. We get the chance to actually strive for things that God promised he can bring to pass. So what we're going to do today, we're not going to just stick with uh, only one passage. We're going to look at a few, and and I want to look at 1 Corinthians 1 first, and I... um, all of them are going to be on the screen. We'll jump around a little bit. Um, uh, real quick, uh, we know that there was a place called Corinth. Uh, there are two letters Paul wrote to the Christians there, uh, First and Second Corinthians. Uh, it seems like he wrote some other letters that we, that we just don't have. What we know about Corinth was it was a wild city. I, think, I don't know whatever comes to mind when we think a wild city, maybe Vegas. Like when you go to Vegas, it's like, whoa. There's a, something's happening here, right? 
Corinth is that kind of place. All right, we know it was a wild city. One of the ways we know is because when Paul writes to these Christians, he's writing in part uh, responding to issues that are happening in their city and in their very church. So that Corinth is kind of notorious because it had a crazy amount of stuff going on. And Paul, you know, it's not like, um, Paul doesn't seem to be afraid of putting them on blast. He's not like, I wonder if uh, Christians forever are going to read this letter. I better send them a DM instead. No, he talks about all their issues out in the open. And so here's some of the stuff he addresses. I'll, I'll just roll through some of it. In chapter 1, he's talking about all kinds of divisions and factions. Some of them are like, yeah, but, I, you know, I like Paul. And others are like, well, but I like Apollos. And so they're over here arguing about which of Jesus' servants they like more. And Paul is like, stop. Neither one of us saved you. Jesus saved you. Be quiet. You're one in Jesus. Chapter 5, he has to rebuke a dude who's sleeping with his father's wife and tell the church to not allow that to happen. Chapter 6, he's trying to tell them, hey, stop suing each other. You look... You're making the the family of Christ look crazy. Stop suing each other. You can deal with it amongst yourselves. Chapter 6, he also has to rebuke this sleeping with prostitutes and explain why it's not right to join the temple of the Lord uh, with the body of a prostitute. Chapter 8, he has to talk to them about just doing stuff, not thinking about each other's consciences and making each other stumble. Chapter 10, participating in idolatry. 12 to 14, these spiritual gift battles they have. And it's like a rap battle, but they're like speaking in tongues and prophesying. Like, oh, you got that tongue? Watch this prophecy. The Lord said, and they uh, are battling each other. Not for the sake of even building up the body. They just want to look like the person with the more impressive gifts. They're completely missing the point. Chapter 13, he has to remind them what love is and said, look, stop worrying about just having the most impressive gifts. How about you love one another? Because these gifts should be shaped by love. That's how they can be used in the life of the church. In chapter 15, even though this is a church that's supposed to be built on the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has to talk to them about actually believing that bodily resurrection is possible. He runs through this crazy amount of issues, some theological issues, some just loving each other issues, and some just crazy immorality issues. And here's, here's the crazy thing to me. That's a lot of stuff. It makes me feel like our church is amazing. But before he dives into all these particulars, he's going to rebuke them for he's going to exhort them. And listen to how he addresses them at the very beginning of the letter, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. It should be on the screen. He says this, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. I find that really interesting. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Now, mind you, Paul already has full knowledge of the issues they're dealing with when he starts. It's not like he started writing the letter and someone was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. did you hear about the Corinthians? He's like, oh, but I already started, so I just got to keep going at this point. No, when Paul starts his letter and he calls them saints and sanctified, he already knows what's going on. He says they're sanctified. The word sanctified means to set apart or to, to make holy. He's calling this church, who he's about to put on blast and rebuke for stuff like 
incest and prostitution. He's calling them sanctified, referring to them as those who've been made holy. And that's where this weird paradox is, because we would say, how could we call them sanctified or holy? He's not even saying in the future you might be sanctified. He's talking in past tense. You are sanctified, as if some kind of sanctification has already happened. So that in Paul's mind, it's not a contradiction to refer to a community full of sinners as saints. How is that? I don't think it's a a mistake or a coincidence that Paul starts, before he gets even into all of that, by reminding them of their identity in Jesus. Because as he reminds them about their identity in Jesus, that shapes all the other stuff he's going to say. That's the grounding for why I'm telling you don't do ABC. You're a saint. Now you're sanctified. One of my questions is how would we have begun this letter? We probably would have just skipped the greeting altogether. It would start with, first of all, what y'all doing? Uh, I would never do such a thing, nor any of my friends. Uh, you know, you need counseling. Here's a counselor. I, you know, we wouldn't have started with any of that good stuff, but we learned a lesson from Paul even in how we see one another and interact with each other. You know, we don't want to be the kind of family in Jesus uh, that the only way we interact with each other is just throwing our sin in each other's faces, right? Or throwing someone's sin in their face uh, at every opportunity. We don't want to be the kind of family where you confess sin to somebody and they like, tuck it away in a file and bring it up two weeks later when y'all get in the argument. Like you confess, I've been struggling with pride and bitterness and then like three weeks later y'all having an argument about what to watch on Netflix. You're like, well, I mean, you have been struggling with pride, so. It's like, what? It's like, you said it, not me, right? That's not the kind of family in Jesus we want to be. We don't want to be the kind of family in Jesus where there's sins that Jesus has forgiven people of and that Jesus doesn't count against people but that then we come around and we say, I know Jesus doesn't count this against you, but I'm going to hold this against you. That's not the kind of family in Jesus we want to be. And Paul is modeling something here. That before he even gets to rebuke about sin, there's a reminder of who they are in Jesus. We don't want to hold each other's sins against each other in an unhelpful way. So I'm not saying let's ignore each other's sins or try to just forget each other's sins. I'm saying let's do what Paul did, Right? He reminded him who they are in Jesus, reminded them they've been set apart by God, and then based on that, he rebukes them. He encourages them towards holiness. There's one pastor who talks about this in a helpful way, and and one of the lessons he says we should take from it is uh, seeing evidences of grace in other people. It It is very easy to see people's flaws. We see people's flaws very easily. Unless... Uh, Unless we don't know them that well and we only get to see the highlight reels on Instagram and real quick after church. Or unless you're dating, that that has a unique blindness sometimes that we can't really see what's happening. Or if you're somebody's mom, then it's hard to. But most of the time, when we are in any kind of close proximity with people, we see their sin real easily. It takes no effort to see people's flaws. We're looking for it just naturally. We love to point out something or just think about something. It takes actual intentional effort most of the time to look for ways that God is at work in people's lives. But I want to encourage you to do that intentional work. 
I want to encourage you to make that effort because here's what happens. There's so many times when uh, we have weeks where we're struggling with something, and the only thing we're aware of in our lives is all the ways we're falling short of what Jesus has called us to. And then when a brother or sister unexpectedly just says, hey, you know what, I've noticed you've been more loving to people than you were in years past. It's such an encouragement, not just a puff up to your pride, but as you fight other sins, it's a reminder, oh, yeah, God actually does work. Like, he, he's worked in my life before, and he can work in my life now. The only way to serve each other, to help each other grow, is not just by rebuke. I'm going to say probably more often, more regularly, we want to build each other up by encouragement, by seeing ways that God is at work. Because what that does is, It not only calls us to continue in something, it also is a great reminder of the God who works in us. And that gives us the confidence we need. Because as long as we're just staring at ourselves, of course it looks hopeless. We're a mess. But when we can look at Jesus, what Christ can do, and what he has done in our lives, it's an encouragement. So that's something we can learn from Paul here. And the way that he addresses them, reminds them of their identity in Jesus. And then in verses 4 to 8, he's finding things in their life to encourage them about. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you. You were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, you aren't lacking in any gifts. This is also, you know, when we want to call somebody out on something, um, it's often good to lead with encouragement, not in a fake way. Don't be trying to just make stuff up like your eyebrows look nice today, so let me talk to you. you like, not like that but like looking for actual things because it helps to remind people that this comes from a place of love. I'm not a mere critic. I'm not a judge on American Idol who could care less and is going to send you away and just is pointing out flaws. I'm somebody who's in your life who sees the good and the bad, and I want to encourage you to continue in the good. Paul is a good example for us here, not turning a blind eye to sin, but encouraging us in where we are in Jesus and in ways that God has worked. So, but we still haven't answered this question, though, of how Paul has no problem calling these sinners saints. It's not only the Corinthian church. uh, He calls Roman Christians saints, and he calls Ephesian Christians saints, and he's calling all Christians everywhere saints. Paul is just throwing his word around. I thought this was for special people who did special stuff. You're just calling everybody saints, Paul. How can you do that? I want to look at another part in 1 Corinthians. Um, You can turn to chapter 6, or you can... Read it on the screen. I'll look at verses 9 to 11. And right after he talks to them about lawsuits, right before he talks to them about sexual immorality and um, prostitution, he says this. Chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So no one could, by any stretch of the imagination, think 
Paul is calling them saints because he doesn't care about sin. He's saying hard things about sin that many of us hesitate to say, even as we see it talked about clearly in Scripture. He speaks directly about it, talks about how unrighteousness will keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God, and even lists some specific sins. He's not worried about people in the congregation hearing the stuff they do among those lists. He wants them to because he wants to hold them to the standard Jesus has given us. So we may say, you're being a horse, Paul, but I I want you to know there's tremendous hope in these verses for us right here. So I just want to stop here for, for a quick second and look at these. Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. One of the reasons that's hard for us to hear is because we seem like the unrighteous ones. I look at my life. I don't think, man, I am so righteous. Maybe there are small moments where I feel like, oh, I I love them well. I killed that. But most of the time, I'm thinking about all the ways that I'm falling short. So it's hard for us to hear that. We know there's lust in our hearts. We know there's greed in our hearts. We know there's pride in our hearts. You know, there's stuff in our hearts that's listed in those things. And so that makes me feel disqualified. Unrighteous can't inherit the kingdom. That sounds like me. Where's the hope? There's this quote from um, Spurgeon that I think I've probably read seven times in the last year and a half, and I'm going to read it again because it's very good. And he's talking to this person who, who feels that way, like, I'm not righteous. I can't do this. He says, you say... I do not repent enough. He said, that's looking to yourself. You say, I don't believe enough. That is looking to yourself. I am too unworthy. That is looking to yourself. Another person says, I can't discover that I have any righteousness. It's it's right to say you don't have any righteousness, but it's wrong to look for any. God says, look unto me. God will have you turn your eye off of yourself and look unto him. I love what he says. You're saying you don't have any righteousness. He's like, you're right. And if you're talking about the kind of righteousness that gets you into heaven, you're wrong to even look for it there in yourself. God is saying, look unto him. If we're going to have the kind of righteousness that allows us to inherit the kingdom of God, it's not going to be righteousness that's in us and that we are in ourselves. It's going to be righteousness that was given to us. It's going to be a free gift from Jesus. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3 where he says, a righteousness, not of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Jesus doesn't just wipe the slate clean. He doesn't just wipe away some stuff. He gives us other stuff we didn't have. He doesn't just wipe away unrighteousness. He gives us righteousness. Isn't that incredible that Jesus gives us, and not just any righteousness, not just any old righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. That is incredible. That's how we get to inherit the kingdom of God, through the righteousness of Jesus. A righteousness that doesn't belong to us. That's good news for a sinner like me who doesn't feel righteous enough. I know when I stand before God, I'm not standing before him with my record, but the record of Jesus. Jesus did that work for me. That's that's good news. He goes on, he says, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor many practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He covers a lot of ground there. First part, he seems like he's dealing mostly with sexual sins and talks about stealing stuff, right? Thieves, greed, pursuing stuff and and hoarding it, right? Talks about drunkenness. Some of these are things that we don't consider sins like, maybe not supposed to do it, but does God really care about them that much? 
And Paul is saying these are the kind of things that keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God, you know, revilers, meaning abusive people. All right, some of us think, yeah, I'm, I'm an abusive person, but I'm not that abusive. Paul talks about that kind of abuse is the kind of thing that would keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God. Swindlers or robbers, the kind of thing that would keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God. Unless you think, yeah, but I'm not on this list. I'm good. Um, you may not think of yourself as an adulterer, but Jesus makes clear. You look upon someone with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart, and you're guilty of the sin of adultery. Right? So even if we try to exclude ourselves from this list based on where we are right now, at least at a point in our life, we've been guilty of some of these things. And he tells us, don't be deceived. I want to say this. If, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you haven't been given new identity. One of the things that God is saying to you from his word is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that um, we can just say a trite God knows my heart and he'll overlook our unrighteousness. He says this unrighteousness will keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God, but he also says he'll give us righteousness. And that's, that's really good news. So someone says, how can I be made righteous? I say, I'm glad you asked. Jesus gives it to you. How much? For free. Believe in him. Cost Jesus a lot. It'll cost us something to deny ourselves once we trust in him. But it is a free gift. It's like when you wake up on Christmas morning and you was terrible all year and it was a gift under the tree. You didn't pay for it. You didn't earn because you were terrible. And your parent gave it to you. Right? It's a gift. It's charity. Uh, God, God gives us that. We can't clean ourselves up, but Jesus does it for us. And, and he's saying there was a time when we could be characterized by these labels. So he doesn't say, and those people aren't around because they couldn't be part of the church. He's saying, and that's what you were. Right? The, the Paul is standing before these people saying, just a reminder you were sexually immoral. You were the adulterers. You were revilers. That's, that's who you were. But just a uh, Bible study tip, uh, verb tenses can be a blessing to you. Such were some of you. Past tense. And then he says, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. You were washed. I love that so much. Such were some of you. And what happened? We were so dirty and unrighteous. What happened? We were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified. Trusting in Jesus is not just like a second chance. Like, okay, I'll give you another try. It's a new soul. God changes something. He washes us. We were dirty and unrighteous, but he washed us. We were unholy, but he sanctified us, meaning he made us holy. We were unrighteous, but he justified us, meaning we're seen as righteous before God. Couldn't meet his standard. Jesus met it for us and said, hey, you could take my work as if it was your own. That is the amazing good news of Jesus. If you're wondering, you say, I don't think I could ever believe in Jesus and follow him because I'm not clean enough. Good news, none of us were. That's not a prerequisite. Right, That actually keeps us from Jesus as long as we think we can clean ourselves up by ourselves. Jesus says, show up dirty and I'll do the work. Just believe in me. Jesus says, you can show up as dirty as you want as long as you're willing to allow me to wash you. Trust me. I'll do the washing. I'll do the sanctifying. I'll do the justifying. And, and that happened because Jesus paid the price for sins already. 
we believe in Jesus, that he, he defeated sin and death and the devil for us. That's the good news of Jesus. One of the misunderstandings that I think we get about the Christian life is that, you know, like God is just giving us a second chance and he'll give us a try and he'll see how it goes with us. Same exact person as I was yesterday, but now I'm, I'm a try now. And this is how we can kind of get in these cycles of rededicating our life to Jesus every week. Like, I messed up this week, but I'm going to rededicate. I'm, I'm going to try for another new chance and see if, see if I can make it this time. Almost like um, NBA teams, if there's a player, they don't, you know, it's, we're not talking about Steph Curry or LeBron James, but they need to fill in a spot, and there's this dude in the D League, and he seems pretty good, and they don't want to sign him for like five years because they want to see how he does in the NBA, so they give him a 10-day contract. Like, you got 10 days. We'll give you 10 days to prove that you belong on this team. So he's kind of on the team. He gets a jersey. He sits on the bench. He rides the plane. He has a chance. And if he plays pretty well those 10 days, they might be like, okay, well, let's, let's give it another shot. I'm going to give you another 10 days. And we'll see if you can earn your keep. But he don't get the full perks. His picture ain't in the arena. Fans don't know who he is. They're like, who is that? They're like, don't worry about it. He's going to be gone in 10 days. Right, They know at any moment, though you seem like you're on the team, that jersey can be snatched off your back real quick. And sometimes we assume like that's what God is doing with us. He's like, okay, you made this decision and commitment. Let's see how it goes. And if you mess up, I'm going to snatch that jersey back. What God does is when he brings us on his team, we're all the way in. And one of the ways we know is we get all the perks right away. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You're in his family for real. Like, you're his. And this isn't, right, and the way we respond to this is not by saying, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Like we talked about last week, we respond by saying, I'm a saint. Let me live like one. I've been washed. Let me live like I've been washed. I've been justified. Let me live like I've been justified. There's all this stuff. Um, you'll understand the Bible better if you understand that we're kind of straddling two worlds. There are these eternal realities that are true about us. We have eternal life. We're righteous before God. We're sanctified, right? And then we have this foot over here. It's like we are a mess. We live in this broken world. We, we take one step forward and two steps back. And there's always this straddling of these two worlds. But we got to hold on to these eternal realities if we're going to be able to pursue these other realities in this world, right? That's my hope, right? I know where this ends. I know the Lord is working on my behalf. So, again, we're not just sinners. Interesting, the Bible rarely refers to born-again believers as sinners. Only one place that I'm aware of. That's not to say that we're not sinners, but it is to say that's not our primary identity. That's not the main way the New Testament talks about us, mainly as just sinners. And that's a, diff- that, that's a subtle difference. The Bible is addressing us as saints who are still sinful, as saints who slip up sometimes, right? It's not like, uh, you know, when... Uh, like my son is learning to walk, and he, he's really just falling, and he accidentally took some steps. And it's like, oh, he's, he's not walking. I mean, he's, he didn't walk. But that was cool to see one time. 
That's not, that's not how we are with following Jesus. It, it's, it's expected of us to walk in that newness of life because we have new life. We're saints who still stumble and fall. There are some seasons where we stumble and fall more than others, but we're saints. And we are sinners. It's a vital uh, part of our identity. Remember, we don't want to forget that. But we're saints. Here's a reminder for you. You know, whatever sin that you struggle with in your past that haunts you, I want to remind you that sin does not define you. You are not defined by your past sin. You may say, Trip, but you don't know what it is. Look, he just gave us a list. There's other lists with plenty of bad stuff. Such were some of you. You've been washed. You've been sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in the name of me, not in the name of some other man, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the name above all names. Your past sin doesn't define you. Not only that, your present sin doesn't define you. He didn't say, and some of you who got drunk last week, you're drunkards. No, 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 no. He said such words, some of you. Right? You are not defined by your sin. He's not saying we'll never sin ever again. And he's not saying we won't ever struggle with some of the sins that used to define our whole lives. He's not saying that either. He is saying our relationship to that sin is much different. Where that used to characterize us, where we used to embrace that, where we used to be fine living in that. We are new creatures now. That bothers us. That grieves us. We push against that. We struggle against that. We try to run away from that with everything that we have. And we fall in and we do all that we can to pull ourselves back out. If we look at this list of sins and we say, but this particular one is so close to my identity that, that, that I can't leave that in the past. I, I can't let Jesus change my identity in that way. If we want to cling to our sins as core to our identity, we will be ensuring that we will not obey Jesus. We will be ensuring disobedience. When we take something that God has called sin, we put it at the center of who we are, and we say, anything that challenges this is not worthy of my time. We've made this our God, and we've ensured that we'll never follow the true and living God. Everyone who comes to Jesus has a massive identity change. And all of us have some such words, some of you. We have plenty of them. And God has called us to a new life. You want to come with an open hand. There's some stuff, when I trusted Jesus, I didn't know Jesus was going to tell me not to do. I was like, I trust you. And I was like, dang, Jesus? I can't. I wanted to do that. But what we have to do is come to Jesus with open hands like Jesus, whatever you want to take away, take it. Because I trust you. Even when I don't understand why this doesn't work, you're Jesus. Like you made me and you paid for my sins. I think you've earned my trust. I want to come with those open hands. One of the ways, um, one of the ways you can display that open hand, willing to let go of anything for the sake of Jesus, is confessing your sins to others. We would much rather prefer to coddle our sin to make sure nobody can touch it. We can keep it in the dark over here. It's good to confess our sins. Scripture says, he who conceals his sin, basically puts himself in danger. He who confesses his sin receives mercy. Uh, that's one of the ways the Lord works in us. 
And here's the thing. Here's why we hide sin. Often we deceive ourselves. Sin deceives us. And here's what we often think. This happens time and time again, and it frightens me when I see it in close friends of mine because I know I could end up there just as easily. Because there's a sin that we want to hide. We don't want people to know. But here's what we say. I got this under control. You know what? I'm, I, I let it do this, but I'm not going to let it get any further. I got this. Or I'm going to just stop now. Nobody else needs to know. I'm going to just stop this now. I got this. When you're convinced that you have your sin under control is when you've completely lost control. Because you tricked yourself into thinking your sin is something completely different than it is. Um, one just random fact about me that you should know about your pastor is I um, often just randomly research stuff. And you should put research in quotes because that, that just means like a Google search, but like a long Google search. Uh, and so I'll often like, I'll hear something be like, oh, I want to learn about that. And I'll waste 15 minutes just like, hmm. My wife's probably like 15 minutes. Yeah, right. But um, so one random thing, don't laugh at me, that I uh, researched the other day was um, wolf dogs, like a wolf dog hybrid. Hey, I trusted you with this information. Don't make me. <laughs> regret this. And if you want to know how I got down that trail, you can ask me after the service. But here's the thing. Uh, people, you know, get infatuated with having this wolf-dog hybrid because, you know, you get a little bit of a wild animal and they look cool and they look vicious like they'll just tear somebody up. And it's like, but it's still a dog so I can train it. And then what happens is the reason why it's illegal for people to have these is because they're wolves. <laughs> like, it took humans a long time to like put some dogs together that you'd be like stop and they're like okay you just give me a treat I'm good uh wolves don't do that they 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 don't care and they eat you okay that's what happens but here's the thing people don't know what they're doing they think they just have a little dog that just looks cool and they're like until uh as they assume they have it under control assume it's some tameable animal that can live in a house and they think it's all good until one day it shows its true colors and it devours them this is what we do with our sin we have a wild animal that we're like i got it i got it you just stay in the corner i got you sit <laughs> and we're good but that is a delusion You cannot control sin. Sin has no power of you because Jesus has already defeated it. But when we coddle it, pretend like we have it in control, we give it the power over us. Your sin will devour you. Your sin is not your friend. Your sin is not something to be patted on the head and given a treat. Your sin is to be mortified, to be killed, to be put out, not to be anywhere near you. We don't want to coddle sin. We want to kill it. We don't want to hide sin in the dark. We want to bring it into the light so we can get rid of it. It will devour us. It's a danger to our souls. There's a reason there's a list of sins that people don't repent of that will keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God. When we're saints, when we're set apart as God's holy ones, we have a different relationship with our sin. Like we talked about last week, we know sin has no place in us because it has no power over us. Scripture tells us we're already saints. Sin is not an itch to scratch. Sin is a cancer. Here's the thing. Um, Cancer is such a deadly disease that people will do anything to get rid of it. 
people will put themselves through difficult suffering. So many of us have seen family members and friends go through chemo and the difficulty. Right? If people have cancer in a particular part, they'll cut part of their bodies off because they know this is eventually going to devour me. Sin is not an itch, it's a cancer. Sometimes it hurts to get rid of. Jesus says, if your eye is going to cause you to go to hell, pluck your eye out. Right? If it hurts to confess your sin, I promise you the pain of confessing your sin is much better than treating that cancer like it's an itch. With saints... We want to live like it. We're, we're holy ones. We want to be holy. God has already made us holy. He's declared us holy based on what Jesus did. And now we're striving to be more holy. He's made us children of God. We're like him. Now we're striving to look like his children and actually live like him. God has made us righteous. Now we're striving to be more and more righteous. And I could go on and on and on. This is how God works. Um, I was uh, sitting in a coffee shop talking to Marcus the other day. We were talking about a writer named uh, G.K. Chesterton, and there was a dude eavesdropping on our conversation, which was rude. We was talking about personal stuff before that, but I ain't going to talk about that now. And he was like, hey, I like G.K. Chesterton, and so I tried to shake off the offense, and he was like, hey, I heard they're going to make him a saint. That's cool. Um, And G.K. Chesterton has been... Uh, he passed away a, a while ago, and people, the way that people are thinking about saints is, okay, this guy has already died. We're going to look at his life and see if he qualified, and then we're going to call him a saint based on that. That is the opposite of how God works in calling people saints. God declares people saints before their lives even look like that yet. It's not, hey, live this life. Way later on, we'll decide if you're qualified to, to be declared a saint. Here's how God declares saints. He says, your life is a mess, but I want you to be mine. Trust in me, you're a saint. You're holy, you're righteous, you're justified, and I'm going to give you my spirit so that not only are you righteous in your standing, not only are you righteous before me, but you're actually righteous practically in your life. And so this is our walk. This is our journey. Not to become someone new. We've already been made new. Now we're fighting to become who we are. You're holy. You are set apart and consecrated by God for special use. We're fighting to become who we are. When we assume I'm just a sinner who can accidentally do good sometimes, that is the wrong way to think about it. You are a saint. You are holy before God because of what Jesus has done, and he wants to work in you. 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're still you, but you are brand new. You are a new creation. God has recreated you. Philippians 2, 12, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. Here's our hope in becoming more like who God has already make, made us. We don't have to work for our salvation. Jesus accomplished it for us. We get to work out our salvation. In light of what Jesus has already done, we get to now go on this journey to become more like him. And our hope is this, not that we're strong enough now, 
but that it's God who works in us. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who's at work in you, right? You don't have to be in here feeling hopeless like I could never overcome any sin. God is at work in you. And it's that God who works to make us even desire to do his will. He can do it. And he will. One of our roles in each other's lives is reminding each other of that. When I have a talk to brothers and sisters in my job, it's like finding out that somebody had a heart attack. I'm not a doctor. I can't fix your heart. I can take you to the hospital, though. So as believers in each other's lives, here's what we can do. As we confess sin to each other, right, as we strive to follow Jesus together, we get to point each other back to the fact that God has made us holy, and he's going to work that practically in our lives, and he's at work in us. So my prayer is that that's encouragement for our fight this week. When sin lies to you and says it's just a little bit, it doesn't matter. Remember this. You are holy and set apart by God. You are God's children. You are saints. Let's pray that God will help us to become who we are. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the work you've done for us in Jesus. God, you are too good to us. Thank you for declaring us righteous and holy and saints. Father, thank you for showing your love to us in incredible ways. Father, we pray that even as we take communion, Father, we'd be blown away by what you've done for us in Jesus. We'd be freshly impacted by it. Yeah, and we'd embrace our new identity in you. Father, for our friends who don't know Jesus, God, introduce them to Jesus. We thank you for your cleansing power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.